your favorite Grasslands PR team. This week, we're back with another reason why these overlooked and underappreciated ecosystems are objectively the best biome. I'm Nicole. And I'm Rachel. And I'm here today to cover our very first Grasslands Amphibian. hey Wait, that is our first <laughs> one, right? Yes. Aha! <laughs> I... Almost did bird stuff again, and then I was like, Rachel, you gotta break your habits. So we're gonna talk about the Mongolian toad and uh, some Mongolian grasslands, because I was so inspired by you talking about its uh, neighbor, (laughs) Saiga, last time. (laughs) Yes. Amazing. I'm so excited. But first, we have some quick news. Um, We did get a new review on Apple Podcasts. It's a very, very good one. It's by Brick1083, unexpected in all the best ways. Having grown up in Kansas, I have a pretty good grasp on grasslands, or so I thought. From parrots to river islands to prehistoric camels, grasslands are far more expansive than I ever imagined. Nicole and Rachel expertly educate and entertain in an effort to bring the best biome the credit it deserves. Uh, It's such a good one. Oh my god, that's so good. Amazing review. Thank you so much, Brick. And just as a reminder, friends, that we are still going to be on an every other week release for the podcast um, and hope to be back to normal very, very soon. But just hang with us just for a little bit. Appreciate your flexibility in our slight changes of schedules as they happen. So (laughs) yes, but tell me about some toads. Let's talk about some toads. Now, um, I just want everybody to know that Nicole has already heard at least some of my toad spiels from doing (laughs) programs for some students. But Nicole, yes, there is going to be new information in here. Okay, okay. Because this is an hour-ish long podcast and not a 10-minute let's talk about amphibians quickly (laughs) moment. But, you know, if anybody listening feels like Nicole is faking her excitement, I just just call her out. That's... Wow. She maybe has heard it before. (laughs) Ha ha. Yeah, so I want to talk specifically about the Mongolian toad, and I will probably mention just a few other anurans, aka the tailless amphibians that live in the Mongolian grasslands. Uh, so this is out in Asia. It's very close in proximity to China. Part of Mongolia is in China, and uh, so. We're in that sort of steppe region that Nicole was talking about last time with the Saiga, which, as you'll recall, is a landscape that's incredibly dry, incredibly cold, and has some weird extremes. Also famously home to our friends the Bactrian Camel, which I got to rant and rave about many episodes ago. So (laughs) putting some contextualization there to help you uh, paint a picture of the backdrop for this animal, right? Okay, so the Mongolian toad, uh, which is currently known as Strokbufo radii, is a pretty standard-looking, like, bufo sort of toad, which anybody listening who's from the Kansas area or, I guess, anywhere in the Midwest, stuff like American toads, Great Plains toads is what I'm referring to here. They don't look all that different from what you expect a toad to look like when you picture one in your head. Um, And actually, it's pretty similar to some other toads that are found in Asia, like the green toad, which is kind of near ubiquitous, uh, and even has really similar ecological requirements to this toad. But the Mongolian toad, again, Strakbufo radii, has fairly unique characteristics and actually does belong to a completely separate genus, um, which I think it's one of the only species in that genus. Um, I say that because I haven't encountered any others, but I don't think that there are other members of that genus. Nice. Yeah. And of course, as the name suggests, this toad lives mainly in the steppe plains of Mongolia, but it can be found in other parts of Asia. So, uh, I'm gonna quickly mention just a few of the other anurins, the tailless amphibians that live in the same sort of habitat. And some of these may sound a little familiar. So we have uh, the far eastern tree frog, which is Dryophytes uh, Japon- japonicus. 
which can be found in places like Korea too. So it's, it's fairly widespread. Um, and interestingly, it is pretty much absent from the vast steppe areas that don't have much like shrub or other woody vegetation. So it can be found in some of the steppe areas of the landscape and the margins of forest, but it stays away from the true steppe. So not important. Move on. Yeah, exactly. That's why I'm... <laughs> but but I just want you to know that I read an entire book that was in like half in Mongolian and half uh-huh. in English that was all about every single amphibian in Mongolia. Oh. And it's amazing not only how few amphibians there are in totality, but also how few of them even utilize the steppe landscape. And so that's why I think it's important to mention these guys, because these are literally all of the inurins found in this in this country. Yeah. Right? So, Farsian tree frog hates the steppe. Okay. <laughs> Next we have the Siberian wood frog. I'm pausing because I expected Nicole to, to recognize it. Oh, no. You don't? Oh, okay. No. <laughs> I know I was having a conversation about cold adaptations with Todd Volkman, one of our friends who who is a local uh, natural educator, too. And uh, he he was pretty floored because he, he mentioned that the wood frog is usually the only frog people talk about when it comes to cold adaptations. And it is a pretty well-known example of some pretty extreme like freezing sort of behaviors and adaptations in terms of amphibians found in Siberia of course it can totally freeze uh but this frog rana amurensis uh its range sees the dry steps the the driest portion of the steps as a barrier for its range and like the other frog prefers forest and forest steppe. So it too cannot conquer the steppe, the true like driest part of the steppe. Okay. And then the very last <laughs> in urine found in Mongolia is considered a very rare species and there's very little information known about it. It's called the eastern frog Rana uh, chensinensis and it's actually somewhat found in rivers and lakes, in the steppe that are surrounded by even semi-desert or straight-up desert conditions. But there's, like, very little information known about the species as it occurs in Mongolia. And I really couldn't find anything. I literally, it says in the book that overwintering information is just completely unknown for this frog in Mongolia. And that's it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So out of Not all... Not very many. Yeah, exactly. Out of all the, the frogs and toads found in Mongolia, only one of them can conquer the steppe completely, and it's rare, and there's not much known about it. So the Mongolian toad is kind of an amazing animal, and it gets even crazier than it sounds right now. So let me let me kind of talk about its habitats first. Kind of like, again, the green toad, for anybody that might be familiar with that species, it prefers open landscapes throughout its range. So it can be found in some of these like semi-forest or margin forest areas that some of these other frogs are found in. But this one prefers the plains. It does inhabit some really diverse habitats and has way broader preferences than other species of Mongolian amphibians, including the Siberian newt, which I didn't mention yet. Uh, It can be found on the banks of rivers, streams, lakes, wet marshes, floodplains, swamps, springs, which doesn't surprise anybody because, of course, amphibians are at least somewhat tied to water. But it really prefers uh, the open landscapes of the plains and also occurs in arid regions. So uh, northern and central Mongolia is pretty characterized by sandy and rocky soils, and it's extremely dry. And that's where this animal tends to thrive, which cannot be said for any of those other species, including the salamander species, the Siberian newt. The Mongolian toad regularly occurs on sandy and rocky hillsides in the dry season on the steppes and sometimes in areas with very sparse vegetation. It does not 
occur in the sandy desert, but it is very strongly associated with watery regions in and around the Gobi Desert and springs of the mountains of Kongai. So this animal not only thrives in these open plains, but escapes out into more arid regions that are even like really dry or really rocky and mountainous. And it might be associated with water in those parts of the range, like in in southern Mongolia, but it makes it out there sometimes, even crossing those sandy deserts where it's not found, but clearly has to like hop its way through or crawl its way through in order to get to the random oases in the middle of the Gobi Desert where it can be found. Sure, yeah. And they're not just doing that like all the time. Like, there are certain times of the year that they're kind of dispersing. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm definitely... Actually, yeah, let's, let's talk about that right now. Because, um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's absolutely seasonal. Um, although there are some localized, like, populations that are just straight up confined to oases with springs and small lakes associated with them. There is a lot of dispersal going on with these toads, especially... You know, once the tadpoles have hatched from their watery regions and are ready to start exploring more. Uh, But there are populations that just straight up live in oases in the middle of the Gobi Desert. And wait, let me mention this too, because this I did not (laughs) mention to you before, Nicole, and it's pretty stinking neat. They also live in brackish portions of lakes Mm. and brackish swamps. So there are some river deltas where freshwater flows into like straight up like saltwater lakes. And as we talked about with the Bactrian camels, saltwater like pools are not uncommon in this region. And, you know, those camels have adapted to be able to drink the saltwater. Likewise, these toads have been found able to live in these brackish waters too. So pretty stinking cool. (laughs) Yeah. Do they have any kind of special adaptations that help them survive in the salty waters? No idea. Okay. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) Um, As in the science has no idea. It's not been studied yet. Yeah. Not that I, like, I looked into it. I've got some notes a little bit later on, like, about some adjacent topics. But, yeah, we physiologically don't really understand. We, We haven't even tested under laboratory or controlled conditions what the saline tolerance for the Mongolian toad even is. So we don't know how much of a saline environment can withstand. There's been some new research coming out in like 2017 involving uh, like fresh observations, like not even laboratory studies, just like observations made in the field about some of its uh, compatriots, like which one was Japonite? Japonicus. Oh, the Far Eastern Tree Frog. Yeah, Mm -hmm. in 2017, a group of researchers published the first ever documentation of tadpoles living in the ocean for that species. (laughs) Oh. So there's a lot that we don't know, and we just straight up have no idea how they're able to do that. So yeah, Yeah. there's a lot of research that needs to be done. And uh, some more on that, I guess, a little bit later, because it has some cool implications. But there's just a lot we don't know. And that makes it really freaking cool. Yeah. But as far as these amphibians conquering these drier portions of the landscape, a lot of it has to do with their activity. Uh, So when we think about adaptations to these different environments, the story is always the same. There are certain, like, physiological things animals do or have evolved um, that allow them to survive certain conditions. But probably more important and often somewhat downplayed or at least like not discussed because it's not, I guess, as cool, quote unquote, is uh, the behavioral adaptations to conquering these landscapes. So in the case of the Mongolian toad, like a lot of other ectothermic amphibians and reptiles that you know, have to regulate their temperatures and stuff through Mm -hmm. their behaviors. Uh, They just change their activity depending on the time of year. And uh, when it comes to dispersal, a lot of it has to do with the rains in Mongolia. So whenever there is a, a big rain event occurring, 
the population density of those young little toadlets that are just beginning to metamorphose along the shore because as just a friendly reminder to our listeners in case you've forgotten from your intro biology classes almost all amphibians uh, are obligated to spend the first part of their life cycle in water so tadpoles in the case of these toads and other frogs um but they have to live in the water. Their eggs are in the water. They hatch into the water. But mm. once they metamorphose, and there's all these little toadlets hanging out along the shore, um, rain events show immediate declines in the population density of those toadlets. So once it rains, they're hopping out away from those edges of the water and exploring those dry regions. And they're able to cover a lot of distance under the cover of rain because their uh, amphibian skin that's kind of prone to water loss <laughs> doesn't have to worry about water loss there's water everywhere i guess fish do yeah. that too don't they fish like i like mean like fish lung fish no i mean like fish Wait, fish aren't just crawling across the land to go to a different water source no 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 no, no. they <laughs> totally are i had a conversation one time with jessica mounts about this i think uh-huh i think Lindsay was there but I'm fairly confident that she blew all of our minds by informing us that during rain events, a lot of fish, like even carp and stuff like that, will just straight up swim through the grasses and just like, and that's how they end up in like every body of water. Hmm. You know, like the myth is, okay, sorry, this got a, on a weird <laughs> tangent. But you know, the myth is that, um, you know, they, they are getting dropped in by ducks or something. Like yeah. The eggs yeah. are getting dropped in by ducks. And Honestly, I can't speak to that. All I know is that it definitely is happening less frequently than fish just straight up swimming across the grasses when it rains. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. I well, can see like a, a flood event doing that for sure, but. Oh, oh, totally. But rains. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, uh, Mongolian toads are just like super fish. That didn't make any sense. I'm going to move on. <laughs> so not only do we observe the population declining along those like shore sorts of habitats, but after the rains conclude, they have been documented appearing in very large numbers in dry areas. So we know like without a doubt that they are uh, dispersing into neighboring habitats and kind of colonizing those super dry areas by taking advantage of those rains. And eventually, of course, they'll have to make their way back to those pools when they're ready to breed, but that's not until next year. So they just go out and conquer the landscape, including those northern Gobi Lake basins where toads of different ages disperse after rains from wet sites to the steppes where they are active. Also, in very sunny weather, which is very interesting. I That's a weird side note, but for some reason, very young toads appear to be way more active in, like, the hottest part of the day than older toads are. So, I don't mm. know. Those young toads, it seems, are just extra ready to conquer dry environments and survive in those more brutal conditions. And no idea why, but their behavior is noticeably different from fully adult toads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so as far as, like, their activity in the day, this is something that I find really interesting, and I do want to mention that it in relation to both, like, their ability to conserve water, which, of course, is an issue for amphibians in the steppe, but also in terms of um, just regulating their body temperatures, right? So like other green toads and similar species, they are fairly diurnal, so they stay active during the days. But this is not consistent throughout the year. So early in the spring, we're talking like May and June, when um, that's when their breeding season sort of begins to end, is like late May, early June. Uh, so before that, while they're breeding, they are super active in the mornings. They're getting up, chorusing, very active, uh, laying eggs and doing all of those toad things. After that concludes, their activity in June begins to shift toward twilight. 
And eventually, in July and August, the toads are only active from early dusk until the middle of the night. So basically, they are shifting as the summers get hotter. And keep in mind, hot in the steppe is like maybe 75 degrees Fahrenheit. But when you're mm-hmm. an amphibian adapted to very cold and temperatures, you know, this this is an increased stressor for them. Um, they shift to a nocturnal lifestyle in order to conserve heat and water when there's less frequent rains and when it's much higher in temperatures. And that's not an uncommon thing, but it's still really cool to mention for these species. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of animals, like, especially uh, herps, so snakes, lizards, toads, all those guys. It gets too hot for them, so they're like, nah, let's let's just be active at night instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, even in Kansas, like, this is a pretty yeah. ubiquitous thing, yeah. Like, there's so many species. If you go to the Herp Atlas, the Kansas Herp Atlas, and read through a lot of the species accounts there, mm-hmm. um, you'll see a, notes for a lot of our Kansas uh, species, like snakes in particular, like Nicole mentioned, becoming completely nocturnal by the end of summer. <laughs> so uh, look for snakes at the end of the day basking on hot summer roads. Yes. Yes. And toads. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh. Yeah, and again, like I said, the young of the year, the young toadlets that have just metamorphosed, do appear noticeably more resistant to the heat and may not only be active in the heat of the day, they may be traveling, like, long distances, like, not just foraging for food and stuff, but, like, straight up traveling during the heat of the day. And they've been observed basking in the sun even in August, So this discrepancy between the young toads and older toads and their behavior is fascinating to me. And I have no idea why this is or if there's a physiological difference, but it just is a thing that these toads do. And I freaking love it that they have like souped up teenagers. I don't know. It's great. (laughs) Yes. Souped up teenagers. (laughs) Yeah, they're just like extra active and ready to face the world. I love it. (laughs) And I guess, I don't know, maybe that makes sense of like how maybe it's young toads that initially were colonizing places like the Gobi Desert, or maybe that colonization occurred before some of the more widespread desertification occurred. I don't know. More on that later. Mm. Mm. But of course, beyond just behavioral stuff, there are physiological adaptations we have to talk about. So there's a couple of different ones I want to mention. Um, that help these toads survive in this steppe landscape where no other frogs and toads are able to really thrive. Um, Those involve physiological adaptations to water loss and physiological adaptations to freezing because we are not going to let the wood frog steal all the fame for being (laughs) able to survive the steppe. Okay? Yes. Okay. Um, So first of all, water loss. I don't have anything new and crazy to mention here, although I might mention the toads in saltwater a little bit. Well, I have a few more details on that, I guess. But um, as far as water loss goes, as what I from what I can tell, uh, the Mongolian toad does not have any special adaptations that other toads don't have. And that may just be because we haven't studied the Mongolian toad specifically. Um... But just in case people aren't super familiar with all of Toad's water loss adaptations, I will mention those things. And they are pretty amazing. Yeah, like, I know a lot of us already are aware of the fact that Toad's can conquer land better than frogs can. But, like, why? I didn't even fully understand until I started to research this Toad. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, happy to share. So, first of all we have to talk about the skin. So visually, toads tend to be more, uh, what's, what's a word for this? Granular? Warty. Thank you. (laughs) Granular. (laughs) Oh Oh my gosh. gosh. Uh, Well, I have some like research paper notes. (laughs) They don't call them warty, but they really Mm -hmm. should. They should. Yeah. I support more layman's language in scientific papers. (laughs) Their, their adaptations come in a couple of parts. First of all, the vascularization, which, okay, fancy word for uh, the different 
blood vessels and capillaries that are present in the skin that allow amphibians to exchange gases and fluids and other things through their skin. That's what I mean by vascularization. It's different across a toad's body than it is in your standard amphibian. Um, A good time to mention that these guys really don't even drink water at all. Uh, Amphibians in general just get into the water and their skin absorbs the water. So they do not have to drink ever. Now, toads drink in a slightly different way from other amphibians, uh, by which I mean they tend to really only absorb and therefore lose water in a significant way through what we call a drink patch on their butt. (laughs) So uh, they will literally sit on damp ground and when their like hind limbs and their stomach region makes contact, That's not a butt. okay. Well, their buttal region, <laughs> <laughs> their underside, <laughs> their underside. Okay, picture a toad. Is it sitting on the ground? Yes. Yeah, it's got its little butt on the ground. <laughs> and a little toad squat. Okay. Where its butt and its back legs is making contact with the ground, that is a drink patch. And these guys can uh, maximize the contact of their full drink patch with the ground by, like, getting down on the ground and, like, exposing even more of their belly to the water. And here's what's really cool. Um, Actually coming into contact with water kind of activates the drink patch and makes it even more permeable to water. So mm. this is pretty neat in the sense that, like, the rest of its body is fairly resistant to water loss compared to other amphibians. But even the drink patch is fairly resistant to water loss, you know, in a sense, until it comes into contact with the water. And then it's flooded with hormones, things like um, thyroxin and, and stuff like that, oxytocin, different hormones that actually cause the the skin to become more porous to water and that drink patch is sort of activated and becomes extra thirsty and it'll soak up a lot of water so when you think about those toads hopping through i don't know the gobi desert uh when it's raining to colonize new land they're literally drinking while they're hopping in the water pretty neat um (laughs) go ahead it would suck to have your little drink pouch just, like, touching sand, though. <laughs> I guess. Um, Sounds uncomfortable. It does sound uncomfortable. But, again, they they can change their posture to really maximize uh-huh. how much of that drink pouch is in contact with the ground. So that helps. And it's probably better to have your drink pouch, like, facing the radiating heat of the ground than facing the sun above you. Yeah. And, again, like a lot of toads, I don't think I even mentioned this, but, you know, a lot of toads will kind of retreat underground or, like, find shady spots to take refuge in when they're becoming more nocturnal and stuff. So, you know, they'll they'll change the location they're hanging out in the day to minimize how exposed they are to the heat and to evaporation and stuff. Sure, sure. So that, that helps, too. <laughs> Um, Yeah, so that's pretty neat. And that's not, I don't know if it's true of all toads, but it's certainly true of a lot of those bufo toads, the bufo leetes, which I think is the green toad, and the struck bufo toad. So pretty neat. A lot of the substances that are produced in a toad's body, including hormones and even um, toxins produced by their paratoid glands, those like big toad poison glands, and other skin secretions in a toad can affect the permeability of their skin. So they have some degree of physiological control in response to their environment and in response to stress conditions in their body. So I mentioned oxytocin and thyroxin, prolactin, vasotocin, and even the, um, well, okay, the glycosaminoglycans 
that are produced in the paratoid <laughs> glands. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff, okay? That's that's the point. There's a lot of stuff that's just produced in their skin, including regular hormones that make their skin more or less permeable to water loss. And that is just straight up crazy. I had no idea. And it's wild to me to think that the love hormone can make their skin more or less thirsty. Yeah. Like, what? I don't know. But it's crazy and I love it. I don't understand how it all works, but it happens. And I, <laughs> yeah. So so there's a lot of physiological control there. And a lot of those hormones are being produced under certain conditions. So it's like, you know, if a toad is stressed out, it'll produce different toxins or glands or whatever hormones. And it might be less likely to turn into a frog mummy. So there you go. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, so that's the the hydric balance of those toads. I think that's pretty much all I had to say about them. Balance. You are being so like sciencey with this one, dude. I'm so sorry. I (laughs) read so many papers. Do you know how hard it is to find papers on the Mongolian toad that are written in English? (laughs) (laughs) Do you know how many like big exposés like that are like? Here's a paper on everything we currently know about amphibian skin that I had to read. I read so many of them. It melted my brain a little bit, and then it recrystallized into nothing but scientific terms. I'm very I'm so sorry. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, enough on that. I talked enough about that. Let's talk about freezing with this animal. Because, uh, like I mentioned, we can't let things like the Siberian newt, which does live in the same habitats as this guy in some regions, or the wood frog still have thunder. No, Mongolian toads are pretty neat too. It turns out, who knew? I didn't, but I do now, and now you will too. So um, <laughs> with a lot of these Mongolian toads, mm, Mongolian toads and frogs rather, they manage to survive intense freezing conditions. And This isn't unique to Mongolian amphibians. In fact, while trying to research this toad, I learned that a lot of the amphibians we have, even in Kansas, Nicole, have some Mm -hmm. pretty intense, like, freeze-thaw resistances that I had no idea they possessed. Um, Things like uh, our our tree frogs, like uh, the gray tree frog, are able mm-hmm. to survive freezing. So it's not completely unheard of. And we're learning more and more about this capability in recent years. So we still have a lot to learn. So in general, Nicole, uh, what do amphibians produce in their body that kind of functions like an antifreeze? I don't know what it's called. Oh, for real? Sugar, dude. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, just sugar. So like glucose, stuff like that. Um. And in general, what that does for amphibians is producing extra sugars, especially like in the spaces in between their cells, kind of makes it like an antifreeze and stops ice crystals from just shredding their cellular tissue. Because that's really the main issue for these guys, right? When you're talking about freezing, damaging skin and damaging just the tissues of animals, It's because the water in our bodies freezes. And when you think of like ice expanding and exploding a water bottle that's too full in your freezer and that kind of stuff. Oh, God. You can imagine like (laughs) what would happen to your cells. (laughs) So not a great thing. But if you um, are able to kind of concentrate the freezing areas outside of your cells, you can allow your body to survive not only having ice crystals on your skin, but actually having portions of your body itself freeze over, which is pretty neat. So they are able to do this. When it comes to uh, Strock Bufo radii, aka the Mongolian toad, they are able to have ice form on their skin and still Mm -hmm. survive it. They can survive having their entire bodies freeze for up to about 10 days, according to their studies. Now, they're not the most hardcore survivors of these conditions. It will eventually kill them, but... Sure. Huh? I was just saying, like, yeah, eventually. Eventually, yeah. <laughs> can only take so much. 
Yeah, but there are some amphibians like the Siberian newt, which again occurs in the same, literally the same habitats and the same ponds as some Mongolian toads. Those guys can survive like 45 days being completely frozen and they'll just concentrate the sugars into their core part of their body and protect their like heart and those vital Mm -hmm. organs and, you know, can form ice crystals inside and on top of their body and be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the Mongolian toads, it's it's less resistant. And I guess that's like the, the end of what we really know about their ability to survive freezing conditions. But I did make note of one question, and I want to mention that I'm getting the overwintering and cold tolerance information primarily from a paper in 2019 that was talking about uh, the moor frog, which is kind of a compatriot. And they they mentioned a lot about what we currently know about other similar species like this one. Um, So as far as like, you know, two years ago? Yeah. My sense of time was in question there. Um, (laughs) What we knew (laughs) involved more species in places like Denmark or Canada, where we know that multiple freeze-thaw cycles that occur in some animals in more northern populations allow them to develop extra high concentrations of glucose that allow them to survive those super high, crazy, uh, cold experiences that happen. But I did note that that is not the case in places like Mongolia and nearby Siberia, because these places really have more of a continuous, steady cooling that occurs without any thaws and so Mm -hmm. as winter is approaching for these species around september some of them are becoming dormant around november some of them will be dormant but you can literally find these animals active on top of snow and ice in their range and they are not experiencing that almost like inoculation against the cold where their body's getting used to it by like getting cold and then getting a break where they can like form a lot of glucose like no they just they just have to continuously cool to extreme low temperatures like you were talking about last time and once they're frozen they really only thaw several months later so if they're going to survive the cold they already have to have burrowed deep enough that it's not going to freeze them for a super long period of time or you know whatever their other method of survival is going to be they they have to sit it out Mm -hmm. for those several months of extreme cold and -hmm. that's it and then they just slowly thaw out again and that makes surviving in this habitat so much different from most other cold places in the world like this this region next to siberia is a pretty intense cold region And the periods of cold that they get in Mongolia are directly affected by those sort of polar events that are drifting over from Siberia. So it's a really unique place. And I think there's still a lot to learn about these amphibians that are living in places like nearby Mongolia. So yeah, I don't know. Questions abundant. (laughs) And I hope someday we learn more about it. Mm -hmm. So they do kind of go through more of like like a traditional hibernation versus like we always think of like bears being like the ideal hibernating animal but they don't even actually hibernate because they're active (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i guess in these toads you would consider it more of a brumation although i'm gonna be frank with you nicole i honestly don't know what the the like defined difference between brumation and hibernation is Mm -hmm. do you no one seems to know have an answer. Like, I think <laughs> that brumation is just, like, a type of hibernation. But yeah. yeah. And and it may have more to do with, like, ectothermy. Yeah. Because, I guess, in endothermic animals, so, you know, warm-blooded animals, if you want to use the older terms for that and the less scientific terms for that, um, like bears, they are experiencing a period of dormancy very differently from an animal that just straight up gets so cold they can't move <laughs> yeah, and like can't eat food or it'll rot in their bellies because they literally can't digest it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's my understanding, but I could be totally wrong. Mm-hmm. It's all kind of, yeah. Yeah. There's like hibernation, which is like sleeping through winter, but then like a lot of mammals go through what we call torpor. And then with the reptiles, it's, 
you know, brumation and who knows. Yeah. <laughs> well, regardless, we know that these guys in, in their sort of typical dormant period will become inactive by about November and then become okay. active again the second things start to get warmer. So, like, April. Okay. And can be active even when there's snow, which this kind of blew my mind because I did not realize how many amphibians can do that. Like, in in my head, because I associate so much of um, their ability to be active with their body temperature, Mm -hmm. I assumed that by the time there's snow on the ground, there's no way those animals could be active. But there, I mean, you can find pictures of salamanders just, like, hanging out on top of the ice. And there's a lot of (laughs) cold weather, like, aquatic amphibians that are most active when it's coldest. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely fascinating to me. And I think it shows there's a lot more physiologically going on with these animals than we really realize, or at least what I had realized prior. So yeah, they're capable of a lot more than you might think. It's true for a lot of animals. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Cool. Well, uh, I have one more tidbit that I wanted to share Um, which actually kind of gets, like, one of my favorite topics into the mix, which is, like, the historic evolution of these (laughs) habitat ideals and stuff. Yeah, there was a paper I encountered that came out in 2020. Shout out to whatever amphibian Twitter account tweeted out this research and made me super hyped about it. I retweeted it at some point, so it's in the ether. I'll find it for you, Nicole. Uh, (laughs) Um, But there's actually a lot of fossil specimens of this particular species that have been found throughout the region. And so researchers in 2020 published a reconstruction of what the ideal habitat looks like for this toad and how that changed over time, like in the Pleistocene to give rise to their current distribution. So here's my problem. (laughs) I know very, very little about the geologic history of Asia. Yeah, I I can't help you. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yeah. So my brain is always trying to relate these things to whatever's happening in North America, but it's completely irrelevant to whatever's happening in Asia. Uh, So I'm going to try, I guess, and lay out what we know about this species. Mm-hmm. I didn't copy and paste any of the pictures from the paper, and I think that's why my brain is currently unable to comprehend what I'm reading. Hang on. <laughs> Help. Uh, okay. I should have read this entire paper before. Gross. No. No, you read the abstract, and then you read the discussion. That's how you read scientific papers. I mean, yes, but also the cool maps <laughs> are not in the discussion. They're during in the um, body of the paper. Yeah, fully. Okay, okay. Okay, so let me let me lay out the current distribution. And you might pull up a map to remind yourself of the geography of Asia. So currently the Mongolian toad is found pretty widespread across southern Siberia, the Russian Far East Mongolia, northeastern China, and northern Korea. And we also know, of course, its current uh, habitat distribution, which is pretty, you know, uh, I guess, cosmopolitan, as long as we're talking about open habitats. So the various biotopes that that could include is like the forest edges we talked about, meadows, steppe, semi-desert, desert, forest, steppe, blah, blah, blah. We talked about that already. And importantly, it does not avoid any human or agricultural landscapes. It does pretty well everywhere. And of course, there's those desert oases, isolated populations. So what's interesting is that the fossil distribution of the species is very different from the modern distribution. And the question that researchers had was, did this change in distribution occur because of a change in the habitats during the late Pleistocene and the Holocene period where these fossils were found? Aha. Uh-huh. And uh, as far as laying out the general like geologic history, um, this late Pleistocene and then Holocene period would be taking place after the last 
glacial maximum. So, so basically, like, when there were glaciers at their widespread, most widespread point, we're talking about, like, a, a period of time occurring after that, right? Okay. Um, yeah, cool. So let's figure out what they found. And this is some really cool environmental modeling and reconstruction work they did. I find this aspect of science absolutely fascinating. Also, I just love that researchers can even look at a bunch of toad fossils and be like, aha, yes, uh, Strachbufo radii, because I can look at a fossil of a toad and be like, well, it's a toad or a frog. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's kind of amazing to me that we can even do that. I will put on our webpage, of course, you'll find the link to this study in our show notes on this app you're listening in right now. Um, but we'll post some of these images from the research on our website too. What they did was they predicted what the suitable regions for Strachbufo radii would be based on what we know about their habitat preferences, right? So they looked at the mid-Pleistocene climate conditions and they said, okay, we're going to use an algorithm that we've created to map out the ideal habitat based on what we know about their current habitat requirements mm -hmm. and matching it with historic geologic data describing what these habitats were like in these regions. Okay? Pretty pretty freaking weird. So basically what they found was that the toads did not live where they thought that they would want to live. <laughs> Ugh, why is that such a terrible description? Okay. <laughs> Why'd you pick such a bad reference? It's not a bad reference. I just took really bad notes because I wrote down every single thing I thought was interesting, which is not how you're supposed to take notes. You're supposed to write down the things that are important to talk about to get the point across and not like summarize the entire paper. <laughs> oh, shoot. Okay, what makes this paper also kind of complex is that, I mean, geologic time is such a broad range and they they measured the changes in climate and habitat through time and space. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, anything archaeological just sounds like magic to me. Like, oh, I, I don't yeah. know how they do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. So, basically, where the toads were actually found living, much more in the Europe area than the Asian uh, regions of, of that continent... Turns out that the habitat or parent ecological conditions that these actual fossils of this toad were living in were very different from the current extant species. And from what we can tell, it seems like during the Pliocene, the species began to be found much more in Ukraine and European Russia based on paleontological data. And it seems like climate change actually caused them to become extinct in those regions where they had been previously found. And it mm. kind of indicates there may have been some pretty intense divergences in the ecological niche of more European Mongolian toads <laughs> and the more Asian Mongolian toads as climate changed. And it's likely that the adaptations of the species to cold temperatures and more desert habitats is what not only allowed the population that currently survives to still be alive today, but also promoted the population to expand into those new regions and colonize new regions. So, I don't know. It's It seems basically what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Just, this is not... Climate uh, changed and they found new niches. Yeah. And survived and, and thrived. Yes. And so I think basically what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is that it seems like the current Mongolian toads in their ability to like adapt and thrive to their current region is a much more recent change that happened. And in fact, the only reason that we even have this species alive today is because the Mongolian toad adapted to the very specific conditions that occur today on the steppe. Because if you look at the current climactic conditions they love right now, and 
map it out in prehistoric time, like in the past, they did not live in these conditions in the past. They lived in very different conditions and the ones that lived in those different conditions died out. So it is purely their evolutionary history that led them down these desert, more dry, more steppe adaptations that allowed them to persist into modern times. And I think that that's pretty freaking cool. Yeah, yeah. That the species itself, recognizable as a species, went through a complete ecological shift in order to survive and live on the step today. Good job, toads. Good job, toads. And I think that, again, kind of highlights just how unique this particular environment is for the animals that live there. And why there's so many strange and cool creatures that make their home <laughs> on the step. Like yes your uh, Star Wars monstrosity that you talked about last time. Wow. Rude. <laughs> yeah. So They're I guess gorgeous. that's all. Oh, sorry, what? They're gorgeous. Don't hate on the Saiga. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that's all I have to say about the Mongolian toad. It's a unique lineage from its prehistoric roots, and it's a unique toad for conquering a place that most amphibians just straight up don't conquer. <laughs> and I think that makes them pretty cool. And I hope more people do research on them. The end. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like all step animals need more research desperately. You're not wrong. <sighs> and the good news is there's a lot of researchers doing work down there. There, there is. There is. Over there. <laughs> good job. No, yeah. I, I have high hope for the step. It still is a very wild place. And yeah, I love the step. It's such a cool ecosystem. <laughs> but thank you, Rachel. And thank you, everyone, for listening to The Best Biome. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please share with a friend and consider leaving us a review on Podchaser, Apple Podcasts, like Lovely Brick. Um, it really helps us out a lot. And give us a follow on Facebook and Twitter, or even send us some fan mail. And we'll see you guys next time. But uh, yeah, they they do. I, I don't. I don't think. I think it's about all I have to say about that. <laughs> Beautiful <laughs> transition. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, hang on. Let me read the minutes real quick and make sure like I can do better.